and they're going to be a bunch of rebels. And they're going to turn against God and turn against Christ. And it is going to be a disaster for them. And that's the reason the temple will fall and all of that. But there's going to be a remnant, as there always was. There's going to be a remnant of a few who are going to be saved. And God is giving them this warning. He is helping them see what's going to happen to their people. Even though they've just come out of captivity, your end is near. You need to get ready. Pretty crazy picture, isn't it? Uh, if you were them, pretty crazy picture. And yet they're seeing that God would be doing this because of their rebellion. Even though they come back out of captivity, most of them are, are rebelling. You better remember about how many came, came back out of captivity initially. Pardon? 50,000. Is that a lot? Not at all. Not at all. So you think of all of the hundreds of thousands that stayed in captivity, were comfortable in captivity, did not come back out, did not come back to Israel or Jerusalem. Uh, so this is, this is really interesting and really significant. It, it, um, it, it I have to say that I've spent the whole day looking at this and studying this and it drove me nuts trying to get all of this in my mind, uh, just this history. And it, most of it's irrelevant to talking about tonight, but I wanted to just be able uh, to have some, some reference point to it. Uh, but it, it is one of the saddest things that I, I think I've ever uh, read about to see the pain and the agony that these people are going to go through. Some of them faithful people, obviously. They will go through persecution just as we will. But to see what they go through is, uh, is, is just amazing. And, and this is God going, I have told you and told you and told you. And you are so stubborn, you will not listen. And now it all comes to a head. All right, so hundreds of years right here in this text. All right, so most of this is what? Syrian kings and Egyptian kings. Syrian kings are known as the Seleucids. Egyptian kings, kings are known as the Ptolemies, which brings us right up close to the time of Christ, around 31 B.C., until they are, they are taken out by the Roman Empire. Uh, so you have these two kings... These two series of kings fighting and back and forth. Who can get power? Who can overcome the other? And the political football in the middle is Palestine, is Israel. And so they're getting the brunt of it uh, both ways. A lot of the battles that are, that are taking place. All right. Um, Verse 11, get, just get a little time marker here. Uh, in the midst of these battles, uh, you see verse 10 and 11, and his sons, the son of the Seleucid king, uh, Seleucus II had three sons who ruled Seleucus III, Antiochus II, and Seleucus IV, and they shall engage in war, and Antiochus III 
who's 223 to 187, shall attack the king of the south. You just keep seeing that. They're attacking both each other back and forth. Sometimes uh, the Seleucids have, a, have an advantage. Sometimes the Ptolemies have an advantage. Most of the time, the Ptolemies are pretty much in control until the later time, and the Seleucids begin to take the primary control once Antiochus Epiphanes comes along. Okay, and so then verse 11, and the Egyptian king Ptolemy IV, you can see the time marker, 221 to 204, shall fight against him, which is the Battle of Raphia, uh, chapter 217, or excuse me, in 217, that is an error, uh, a typo there, and be victorious. And then verse 12, and the king of Egypt and his army will be elated at such success, but it's not going to last. And then verse 13, you see in the actual text, for the king of the north shall gain, uh, shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Okay, so this is a, a, the Seleucid king, uh, Antiochus the third. He's going to raise another great army than the first. And then after some time, he's going to attack again. So he, uh, here, here we go. And then verse 14, In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among our, our, your own people will lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. And I notice there's a lot of times a little mention of Jewish apostates. These are some of them. They're going to jump in the battle like mercenaries. They're going to get an advantage. And so they jump in the battle uh, against them. And they, and they think this is going to help them, but they're going to eventually fail. So the, com the historical comment on the other side, on your left side, at this time, many warlike Jews will ally themselves with Antiochus III and thus help him to victory. But this shall be to their own undoing since Antiochus the fourth, Epiphanes, will thus be able to rule over Palestine. So this is leading right up to when Palestine is going to be completely controlled by the Seleucids and specifically by Antiochus III and his son, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes is, this da is the dangerous guy that's coming up here in the text. So verse 15, then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to sand. Verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Okay, so you see Antiochus III there in verse 15. He, he takes the well-fortified city of Sidon and Ptolemy's general, Scopus, he, he loses this battle, uh, takes refuge, but, but that gave Palestine then the, to the Seleucids, even though uh, Ptolemy IV died, then Ptolemy V now, uh, 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 excuse me, it, it, yes, Ptolemy V took over. Verse 16, the king of the Seleucids will and then on this occasion be unbeatable and he shall gain control of Palestine. Palestine, and that's what the Jews should be afraid of. So then in verse uh, 17, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So funny enough, uh, what, what takes place is, 
the king of the Seleucids here, uh, this, this would still be Antiochus III. He's trying to establish his home front, so he, uh, he's, he uh, makes a, 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 contracts a marriage between his daughter, uh, his daughter uh, Cleopatra, and the boy uh, king, Ptolemy V. But the arrangement doesn't work because Cleopatra loves, loves the Ptolemy king <laughs> and won't do what Antiochus III wants her to do. So she just joins the Egyptians and is enamored with being an Egyptian. So it doesn't work out for him. That's the, the idea. So then verse 18, and this begin, gets into the kind of critical things we really want to know. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back on him. All right, at this particular point, I want to give you just a little jump out, a little, backgr a little background here. Um, just on, on some, some, some history. So Antiochus III, is, he's got a section here about him, but that's setting up the person we really want to know about, and that's Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus III does all these battles back and forth. Sometimes he wins, sometimes he loses. And then Hannibal... Anybody remember the name Hannibal in history? I barely do. <laughs> and, but he was trying to overthrow the Romans and, uh, was, and lost the battle, was defeated in 202, and uh, ended the Second Punic Wars, just in case you really wanted to know about Punic Wars. But it ended those Punic Wars, and he was mad, and he escaped and went to Antiochus III for refuge. And he still wanted to cause problems for Rome, so he stirred up Antiochus III to go attack Rome. So he does this campaign all the way into Asia Minor, and the Romans come out and really whack him and, and just destroy him uh, and force him to pay them huge sums of money in order to get his son back. So they take his son and say, you owe us you know, billions of dollars, and if you don't pay him back, you'll never see your son again. So Antiochus III's son, who later is Antiochus Epiphanes, stays in Rome for 12 years, <laughs> 12 years, until finally they do a prisoner swap, and uh, Antiochus III, in the meantime, is robbing temples, trying to get enough money to pay off the Romans. But in that period of time, Antioch Epiphanes observes the Romans and their power. And this makes a big difference of what, how he's going to make decisions when he comes into control, when he comes into power after his father dies and his brother dies. His brother will take the throne next, uh, Seleucus IV, but he's going to die fairly shortly and by assassination. And then Antiochus Epiphanes will take control in a sneaky way because Demetrius, his nephew, was supposed to be the one that came and took the throne. So you following this really good. This is fun, right? It's nuts. I read that a thousand times as to like, pull my scrambled eggs trying to figure uh, this out. At any rate, 
The point of all that is Antiochus gets an idea of how the Romans act and what they do and realizes when he gets into battle that if the Romans say frog, he's going to have to jump and uh, he's not going to be doing this. But he's still trying, when he gets in control, he tries to take uh, Egypt. Okay, so let's catch up a little bit. I just wanted to fill you in on that. Let's catch up a little bit back here again. Uh, going back then to, um, where was I? <clears throat> back to, yes, uh, chapter, uh, verse 18, All right. So in verse 18, afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands. There is Rome. He's going to try to do that, but they're going to turn the insolence back on him. Verse 19, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. In other words, Antiochus III crashes and burns, and um, he, he no longer is able to, to maintain his power, and uh, he dies uh, trying to rob temples. <laughs> so he, he just really, really brought down on his attempt to, uh, uh, to attack Rome. Verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So Seleucus IV who is the son of Antiochus III and brother of Antiochus Epiphanes, takes the throne next, but does not survive. He tries to do what his father does and go rob some temples too to uh, send money to Rome in order to get them off his back. And it doesn't work and he gets assassinated. So that's what it means when he says it was neither in anger nor in battle. You know, how'd he die? Well, he, uh, one of his people just assassinated him and took him out. That sets the scene for Antiochus IV, and you see in verse 21. So verse 21, all the way through verse 35, is all about Antiochus Epiphanes. You can see how much space. 1 through 20 was 380-some years, just skimming over them. But now, in 21 through 35, all about one king, because this is the guy that's going to cause the most problems uh, for uh, the Jews. All right? So you can see how he's described uh, in verse 21. Thus shall rise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. So he didn't really rightly have the throne. His nephew Demetrius is supposed to take the throne, but through some slithering acts and payoffs to countries around him, he is able to take, uh, take the throne. And he shall come in without warning, obtain the kingdom by flatteries. You can just read flatteries as bribes. He is using, using various ways to, to, main, to get his control. And... Uh, so in verse 22, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Apparently referring to the high priest. Uh, the high priest here at this time uh, was uh, Onias. I think I'm saying his name correctly. Onias III. He is the high priest. And here's the background on this. So when he, gets in, when he gets into Palestine and now has control of Palestine, the one thing that Antiochus wants, and he starts slowly at first, but what he wants is he wants his country united in, in Hellenistic beliefs. 
So he does not have whatsoever a brain in his head when it comes to thinking what the Jews are going to do when he comes in and makes an edict and says, you can't worship God anymore. I mean, he's like, so what? <laughs> I win. I conquered you. This is just politics. You don't get to worship your God anymore. Well, this hasn't happened to the Jews before for hundreds of years. They, even under other kings, they've been allowed to, to worship. Not a big deal. Under the Persians, same kind of thing. But he comes in and he wants to unite his territory uh, following the Greek uh, philosophies, the Greek gods, all of this stuff. So he sends some captains and other people to go in and get that going. Well, there's some rough spots, and Antiochus is out fighting battles in other places, still fighting against Egypt, still trying to take them. He's out, and his captains are, are trying to get some of these things done. And when they come in then to Jerusalem, Onias who is a very conservative Jewish believer and high priest, he isn't going to go along with it. And so, get rid of him. I, I read some histories that said they didn't know if he was killed or he escaped into Egypt and was never seen again. There was various things like that. But most just say, I, they, they just knocked him off. His brother, Jonathan, was put in his place. Now, Onias wasn't killed right away. The brother came in and said, I'll pay Antiochus all kinds of money if you let me be the high priest. <laughs> now, Jonathan, obviously, he didn't care about the law, and he didn't care about God. He was a Hellenist. He wanted to join these, uh, these, these Greeks. Now, any, you might wonder why. Because the Greeks were rich. And everywhere they went, you've heard of Alexandria, Egypt, let's say, very, very wealthy. And if you lived and you went along with the, the Hellenist and you came in and you joined them, you're going to be rich. You're going to live high. You're going to do, do great. You're not going to have to be a grunt and live like the Jews had always lived. And so money is flowing like crazy. And Antiochus himself is throwing money out to, to the people who, the Jews, and anybody who will join him. He's like, yay, come on. And so there's a lot of desire to get rich. And so that is what's pulling a lot of Jews during this time over to Antiochus' side. So what you have to realize is, I always kind of had in my mind, okay, here comes Antiochus into Jerusalem, and everybody's going, no, you're not. No, that's not what happened at all. Lots of Jews are going, come on in. Let's uh, live high. <laughs> and so you can see how degraded the belief is. Now, obviously, there's the faithful who, who, who want to stand strong, but they get murdered. 40,000 are murdered in one day when one of the generals for Antiochus comes in and starts cleaning house. And it's a mess. Uh, so you can just imagine with what we have seen uh, it just in this past month, uh, two months, I guess all now, uh, of what has took place in Israel. And you can get a little feel of what it must have been at that time. Uh, and, and it's just, it, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing and, and pretty scary. So anyway, uh, going back then to um, verse 23. 
from the, from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. So Antiochus made leagues and covenants with all kinds of people, but he was deceitful and was not really going intending to keep his promises. Verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest part of the provinces or province. He shall do whatever. Uh, he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done. Scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Uh, so anyway, he, he, he comes in and he sets this precedent of just lavishly giving money uh, to everybody he can in order to ensure his stability and then using his cunning to go against any enemy forces. And he's going to succeed then for a little while. In verse 25, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. So the Ptolemy king, the Ptolemy king at this time had more army, more people, but he loses because some of his own people who are in, are, are in cahoots with Antiochus and so he, he loses. Uh, and, and the plots are, as it says in verse 25, are, are uh, devised against him. Verse 26, even those who eat his food shall break him. You can see this, his army shall be swept away and many shall fall slain. So Ptolemy loses this battle even though he had more people. Verse 27, and as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be a time appointed. So, yeah, has anything changed? You're noticing a familiarity with this? <laughs> Kings sit down at the same table and they both lie to each other and all of this to just try to get an advantage. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's exactly uh, what they do. They're both evil and have evil intentions. But God has this set in his mind as to when it's going to come to an end. Verse 28, And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. So you can see after he returns, from this. He's coming back. Now he's setting his sights back again to uh, the law of Moses, which is getting in the way of him Hellenizing all of the Jews. They're going to follow the law, and he's, he's battling against that. Um, so then in verse 29, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be, the, be this time as it was before. So, as, as basically the time appointed, this is God controlling a lot of this. He's going to again attack Egypt. This is in 168. Now, so we're getting really close to this time when the Jews are going to get their persecution. 168, but this time he's not going to be successful as before. And the reason is, verse 30, For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. All right. So, he goes down, he's going to attack Egypt again, and Rome goes, time out. We don't want you taking Egypt. Easy to know why. Rome's going, Egypt is ours. <laughs> you don't get Egypt, we get Egypt. And you can get out. 
So here is the Roman commander with his armies standing face to face. This is a really interesting story, but he stands face to face here with Antiochus Epiphanes, and he says, you have a choice. Get out or die. And Epiphanes says, um, well, let me consult with my officers. And the Roman uh, leader, general, takes his staff and draws a circle around Antioch, like that. And he says, if you walk outside the circle, I will kill you. What are you going to do? Give up or go home? <laughs> You're not walking out of the circle and going asking anybody. Make a decision. Well, Antiochus, having been in Rome and knowing how the Romans were, he goes, um, okay, I go home. <laughs> and that was that. So you could see how his, this, this previous story of him spending 12 years in Rome, he realizes he has, he has no choice but to leave. And it infuriates him. He is, it just, it, this was all his hopes and dreams. So now he's going to go back and he's going to solidify his own domain, which includes Palestine, and he wants to get these Jews then to uh, be on his side and, uh, and get rid of all this Judaism. So that's now where we uh, get into uh, the persecution that gets so bad in verse, uh, verse 31 here and following. So verse 31, forces from him shall appear. So he sends these generals and captains. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Uh, so, uh, so what happens is, and I looked up a little more information on that. Uh, so what happens, this is 167. These couple of dates here are really important. It'll be very important to the Jews. So in 167, he sends his general in. As I said, we go in, he goes in, he kills 40,000 Jews. He just starts wiping anybody out. They, they took pigs offered them on the altar. They set up a, a god, a, a bust of a god to Zeus, uh, some say Jupiter it was called, and, uh, and said, this is the god you worship. This is an image of the god you worship. So you worship this. And uh, then they had orgies and all kinds of pagan types of uh, horribleness in the temple, around the temple, all over the temple, and, uh, and did all of these things to just infuriate, obviously, the Jews, especially the faithful Jews. So the only, the only one, the ones who could save this uh, were, were a couple of guys, one uh, named Mattathias and another Judas the Maccabee. And these two guys led a revolt. Uh, and it took three years for them to eventually come back and run the Seleucids out of Jerusalem and set up uh, worship again uh, as, was, as was intended in Jerusalem. So just read with me then in verse 32. 
He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. A lot of apostates, he pays them off, but of course there are some faithful. Verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble but so, by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So there are teachers among the Jews trying to teach them to stay strong, to not give in, but it's very difficult. If you circumcise your baby, you will be murdered and the baby. If you observe the Sabbath, you will be murdered. Uh, if you observe any festival, you will be murdered. Uh, if uh, in any way you do anything that would indicate Jewish law whatsoever, you're going to be murdered. If you do not offer a sacrifice to the pagan god of Zeus or Jupiter, you will be murdered. Goes on and on and on. You can read quite a bit of this in, in a lot of the histories of the Maccabees. Uh, one woman with seven children, uh, seven grown children, were all murdered because they would not offer a sacrifice on the altar and all of them stayed strong and said, you can kill us all, we're never going to uh, do that. And it just went on and on and on. So uh, this fellow named Mattathias, he escapes to the mountains and he builds a little force and more and more people come to him and they wage, along with later Judas the Maccabee, they wage a guerrilla warfare for the next three years. Pretty cool, you know? Didn't know they had guerrilla warfare back then, but they just hit them in different places and eventually worn them down. So verse 34, um, uh, let's see, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many will join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So, in other words, there's still these teachers, etc. Verse 35, a comment, the persecution which the loyal will have to undergo will work out for their own benefit. Ultimately, but they're going to have to suffer until God puts an end to the Seleucids, for it is appointed by God. Okay, why does God appoint his people at times to go through those kinds of trials? Where you be killed, where your faith is, you, you know, you're on the spot. If you don't, if you don't deny your faith, you're going to die. Why would God let his people go through that? test. Do you think the test would be that hard? <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> How about we just have a test of, <laughs> we think of something simpler. Yeah, he very plainly tells us in verse 35 why. That they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. It is greatly important that we always live as crucified people. Uh, I have uh, one of my hobbies, when, and it only happens when I'm on vacation, I write, like to read books about presidents or world, or world wars, just to understand what's going on. And 
guys that are successful in battle, the books I read just say, what you have to do is always remember you're already dead. Let's go. You're already dead. Let's go. Well, we Christians need to have the similar attitude. You're already dead. If it comes to that, no surprise. I'm already dead. I've already given my life up long ago. Whatever they're going to do, they're going to do. But I'm not denying the Lord. Period. I, I just, for some reason, think <laughs> it's important to prepare our minds for that. Maybe it never happens to us, but you and I do not know. And to see the amount of people that have come into our country that are praising what happened in Israel ought to send chills down our spine. Because it's not just Jews they hate. They hate Christians too. And they'll do the same thing to Christians. So we need to prepare our thinking and prepare our minds for how we're going to handle this. One of the things that the um, Antiochus and his men found out is the Jews wouldn't fight back on Sabbath. Finally, Judas Maccabeus said, time out, Jews. We can defend ourselves on Sabbath. <laughs> this is silly. We're standing here every seventh day and getting murdered. You know, we can defend ourselves. But at any rate, you see the challenge that they, they were in. All right, up to that point. Any questions, comments, etc.? Yeah. Okay, that's what we're going to see. So this abomination of desolation is one of two that we know of in the Bible. This one has to do with what the Seleucids do. The next one's going to have to do with what the Romans do, and it's very similar. Setting up that which is unholy in the holy place. All right. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. Daniel's hearing the Five thirty-six. Yes. And one and one sixty-seven to one sixty-four is when this particular part's going to take place. You can see how many hundreds of years are going to go by before this happens. By the way, this is the origin of Hanukkah. In case you didn't know. So when they finally cleanse the temple in 164 and they do a celebration of lights or called Hanukkah during this time of the year and, uh, and they cleanse the temple, I think there's even a, um, a story that when they first lit the lights, they didn't have enough oil to last and the, for some reason it lasted the whole eight days, something like that. Whether that really happened or not, who knows, but it's a great story anyway. <laughs> And so there's that. Yeah, so you, you can see this is amazing how much historical territory that takes place during this time. You referenced First Maccabees and a lot of the other ones. Uh, would you say that those books are very helpful to read? Yeah, oh yeah, there, there, there are, through that, yes, there's, there's his, a lot of histories that set up things that we know of in the New Testament. Now, there's a few New Testament books, like Jude, that make some reference to 
apocryphal writings even. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, you just have to realize, obviously, there is no way they're inspired and there's going to be places where there's exaggerations and things like that. And historians will question, in fact, some of the things and going, eh, we can't back that one up, but this we can and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, verse 36, I've just got a few minutes here, but when, verse 36, there is a subtle change. So when you read verse 36, it says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Suddenly there is a change from the Seleucid kings to the Roman king. The Roman Empire now is taking control. And so that is what we're looking at here. Now there's a lot of references to this, this little thing. Uh, go back to chapter 7 and verse, uh, and verse 25. Uh, when it talks about the fourth, uh, fourth, fourth beast and the fourth kingdoms. He's going to be different than all the others. Um, in verse 24, as for ten, the ten horns out of his, this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be be given into his hand for times time and a half a time. All right. So now all of a sudden we're, we've transferred way over uh, to the time of the Roman Empire and, uh, and we have this king who rises up, the Roman persecuting kings who rise up. This is going to be parallel to Revelation 13. I'd hope we'd look at that. But Revelation 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2 both talk about this set of kings of the Roman Empire who rise against God and do the things that they do uh, against God that leads up then uh, to uh, this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So verse 36, 37 says, He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one or to one beloved by women, he shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. In other words, he's going to, verse 38, honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. So the Rome didn't care about, you couldn't bribe them, you couldn't anything, you just, they wanted power, they wanted control of everything, and they would, conquering was their God. That's what they wanted. And if you gave up, great, come on in. If you didn't, fine, we will annihilate you. And, and so they, they ruled and reigned and conquered by force. And they maintained peace in the empire by force. And, uh, and that's how uh, they, they, they uh, got their power. Okay, so... No, no, we are actually coming up to the time of, of uh, Caesar Augustus, is what we're coming up to, 31 B.C. 
And that's, that's where this is going to uh, end. In verse 40, uh, you see that, uh, that Cleopatra and Mark Anthony, uh, they tried to battle against Rome. They failed, and uh, Rome took them over. And so 31 B.C. ends the Ptolemy kingdom, and Egypt is in the hands of Rome, and they become uh, then all-powerful. Uh, and uh, are, are the ones in control. And that's going to set us up then, and we'll just finish that little part there, but that's going to set us up then for chapter 12, which is fascinating, because that's going to bring us up to the time of Christ, and eventually the destruction of Jerusalem, and eventually the whole book of Revelation. Chapter 12 of Daniel, Daniel is going to prophesy about the scroll that is unveiled in the book of Revelation. So that's where the connection is. For some reason, it's just coincidental. I'm doing Revelation in the first of the year. <laughs>